Amen. Isn't it a blessing to see young people using their talent for the Lord? I don't know whether that's off or on. It looks alive to me, so I better thank you. And especially when they sing a song about the cross, that's impressive. When a young person chooses to sing something like that, well, you know their mind and their heart's in the right place. Before I begin, let me just say tonight, uh, as far as the teachers' meeting, just if you would turn in your monthly report, if you'll give it to me or to Bubba. Uh, I, I, I don't. I think I'd rather do that with the baptism afterwards, and I want everybody's attention focused on that. And uh, and I know some of you want to be spending time with those that. Uh, are being baptized, and I don't want anything to distract from that. So just if you'll get the report in. Open your Bibles tonight to Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians chapter number 5. Last week, I spoke from verse number 1. We ended chapter number 4 being reminded here that God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. What a wonderful way to end that chapter What a great way to start this new chapter. And then last week in verse number 1, I want to read these words again. Our message last week was entitled, Imitators of God, and it's based on verse number 1, Be ye therefore followers, which means imitators, followers of God as dear children. Now, we come to verse number 2, our text for tonight. And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Tonight, I'm speaking on the subject, walking in love. And this is a wonderful verse, and it opens up four lines of thought. And so, as we go through this verse, I want these four things to stand out. First of all, he begins by speaking about emulating God. That is, God is our example. Remember, verse 1, he said, be followers of God. So we are to emulate God. Words are always important, especially when they're found in the Bible. And when God says something, we need to pay close attention. Notice how this verse opens. It opens with the word, and. Normally, we just ignore words like that, but we make a big mistake. He begins by using the word and, and that ties this to what Paul has just said. Notice he's been talking about being followers of God as dear children. And one of the strongest evidences that we are truly a child of God is the fact that we love other people. We cannot follow God unless we emulate Him by walking in love. We can know a lot about God, talk a lot about God, do a lot of religious things, but if we don't love others, there's absolutely no evidence that we've really been saved. Now, you're not dumb, and you know I'm telling you the truth when I say that for the most part, people are walking 
after lust rather than love. We know that's true. And it's not anything new because the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 2, he says that people will be lovers of their own selves. He says they'll be covetous, without natural affection, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Listen, when we live like that, our words are hollow. They're without any meaning, and we're unable to win others to the Lord Jesus Christ because You know, our so-called following God is meaningless unless we love like He did. Remember in John chapter 13, where the Lord had washed the feet of the disciples, and He tells them, I want you to go, and you do as I've done unto you. Then in verse number 35, He says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, and that you have love one for another. Now notice, He does not say they're going to know you are my disciple because you love them. He's simply saying that others are going to be observing how Christians live, and he's speaking to the men that constituted the first church. These are the disciples that he called out. He assembled together with him, and he said, the world is going to be watching you, and to convince them that you're really my disciples, you'll have to do it by showing them that you love each other. And by the way, they were all imperfect, just as we are, and yet we're commanded to love one another. Now, It ought to be the desire of each and every one of us that we love others as much as possible, that we love others as Christ, and we ought to never cease from trying to achieve that goal. Look at at Philippians chapter 3. We're talking about being a follower of Christ and being a follower of Christ in the context of loving others. Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now listen, that is graphic language. Paul is simply emphasizing the fact that nothing else is important to me as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 9, And to be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. Now, Paul was already saved. Understand, Paul has already been saved at this point. He's already a child of God. But he's talking about knowing the Lord in a more intimate way, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. And notice what he says next. And even the fellowship of His suffering, being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this last verse. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, and if anything be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. 
What stands out in all of that to you? What is the one thing that just jumps out and grabs you by the throat? Well, for me, it's the fact that Paul, although he is totally satisfied with the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not satisfied with himself. And let me tell you, any time we get to the place in our life that we're satisfied with self, there's something wrong. Because we never, ever measure up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is until the day that I die, as long as I'm here, more and more and more, I want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to emulate Him in all that I do. And notice He included in that, even if it means suffering. I want to know the fellowship of His suffering. And, you know, this was the original whatever-it-takes song. It's what Paul is saying, whatever it takes. Nothing else is important to me. It's all dung. The only thing important to me is that I might become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're going to walk in love, we've got to emulate Christ. Now, notice secondly, the exhortation. He began with the word and, but notice the exhortation, walk in love. The Greek word translated walk means to make one's way or progress, or it means to make due use of opportunity. Whenever Paul uses this in the metaphorical sense, he does it 32 times in his epistles, and it speaks about our conduct or our behavior. Our conduct, our behavior is to what? Well, it's to walk in love. Walk, the Christian walk, is the theme of the last three chapters of this letter. Remember, we started out by saying in the first three chapters, he talks about our doctrine, but in the last three, he speaks about duty. So in the first three chapters, it has to do with our belief. In the last three chapters, it has to do with our behavior. And again and again, he uses this word, Walk. We go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Notice, he said, Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And then he proceeds to describe what to do and how to do it. And he comes right down to this point and he tells us, And to walk in love. Now, that's the command. And there's nobody here that can't understand that. All of us. Uh, have the capability of understanding exactly what he is saying here, but there's some things that we must know and do in order for that to become a reality in our life. Number one, to do that, we have got to comprehend the meaning of the word love. We've got to know what real love is. You know, we just assume that everybody knows what love is, and the fact of the matter is, everybody don't. You can even go into the dictionary, and it doesn't give a great deal of help, because when you look in the dictionary, you'll see that it says, you know, it's got a long list of different things that it can mean and different ways that it's used. And then it comes down to, as in tennis, it means nothing. So love can mean everything or anything, or it can mean nothing, depending on how you use it. And so we talk a lot of times about loving people and talk about loving God and so forth. Listen, when he says here that we are to walk in love, he uses the Greek word agape, which is exactly the same word that is used in John 3.16 and other places describing the love of God. The same word. So what he's saying in essence here 
is that we are to love as God loved. That's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that seeks the highest good of other people. Let me say that again. Here's what real love is. It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that seeks the highest good of other people. It's a choice that we make that we're going to do exactly that. Now, to really understand it, what we have to do is to look at God's love, and then, then we'll know exactly what is implied. And I'll get to that in just a second. First, comprehend what love is. Second, commit ourselves to a continuing process. It's a process. The Bible talks about learning to love. It says that the older women ought to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Are you with me? In other words, love them more and more, as it were. Sometimes we just assume that, you know, that women love their husbands, husbands love their wives, and, and yet there's a whole lot more to it than what the average couple understands when they first get married, and those that are older can teach them a lot about love. You hear people say, well, you know, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. Well, do something about it. You can change that. Because love is a choice that you make. It's not some warm, fuzzy feeling that you have. It's a choice that you make. It's a choice that says, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to commit myself to caring for the deepest needs of that individual. So it's a commitment, and it's a continual commitment. It's not not just, you know, I love them today and I don't love them tomorrow. It's something that continues on and on. But the third thing about it, not only... Not only do we have to comprehend what it means, not only do we have to commit ourselves to, to the process, but we have to consecrate ourselves unto God, because on our own there's none of us that can love others as we should. We're all going to fail and yet, un, 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 unless we yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul said the fruit of the Spirit is what? Well, he started out with the word love, did he not? That was the very first of the nine different graces. So love is the product of the Holy Spirit. So whenever the Lord tells us that we are to love others, He's simply implying that we have to make a choice, that we're going to make a commitment to them. But it makes no difference how many commitments you make. If you don't consecrate yourself unto the Lord, you're never going to carry out on those commitments. And that's why... That if I have a problem loving somebody else, it's not just a reflection on them, it's a reflection on me and my relationship with God. Because when everything is right between me and God, when I've absolutely and totally consecrated my life to God, then loving others will become natural for me. It will become possible for me. So, he says that we are to walk in love. Now, he doesn't end there. He could have just stopped right there and says, that's it. And walk in love. Just left it there. But he didn't do it. Notice what he says next. Here's the example. So we go back to the first word. We see that he speaks about emulating God. Then he gives the exhortation to walk in love. And then he gives us this example as Christ also have loved us. Now, that is a requirement and a reminder. Notice, He loved us, 
We're to love others. So we've got a reminder and a requirement. Notice the word as. As Christ also, notice, has loved us. Boy, that's a tall order. He didn't just say, walk in love, you know, and love other people. But he said, we are to love others as Christ loved us. He's setting forth Christ as the example. So this goes beyond the ordinary. We're to love them in the same way that Jesus loves us. So, how does God love us? How does He love us? What what would characterize the love of God for us? Well, let's look at some things. Number one, it's costly. John 15 and verse number 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's costly. Secondly, it's conspicuous. Acts 26 and verse 26, For this thing was not done in a corner. And there he's speaking about what Christ did in the crucifixion and him giving of himself. He said it wasn't done in a corner. It was out in the open, as it were, for the world to see. And God has not hidden the fact that he loves us. So our love, then, if we're going to love like him, ought to be costly. It's going to cost us something. It ought to be conspicuous. That is, that it ought to be be evident. Don't leave people in the dark as to how you feel about them. You need to let them know that you love them. Then it's caring. The Bible says, He careth for you. It's complete. It's constant. It's continual. He loves us with an everlasting love. Now, when we look at all of that and think about the way that Christ loves us, the thing that that just smacks me upside the head is I can't do it. And, and that's right. I really can't do it. God will have to do it through me. And listen, there's no way that we can ever love to the same degree that Christ loves us. But we can love in the same direction. Are you with me? You cannot love to the same degree. That's impossible. But you can love in the same direction. By that, I mean that we cannot reproduce the miracle of His love because there's none like it. There's no love to be compared with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But although we can't duplicate the miracle of His love, we can love in the same manner. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean that we can accept people without partiality. I mean that we can love people unconditionally. I mean that we can freely forgive people. We can help people continually. Pray for them daily. And the list goes on and on. So while I'm not loving others to the same degree that, that, that I would like, I can love them in the same direction in that I'm doing in regards to them what Jesus did concerning me. But that only happens to the degree that I'm willing to submit myself to the control of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever had someone say, you know, I just cannot love that person. I mean, they're meaner than a junkyard dog. They don't care anything about me or anybody else. I absolutely cannot love somebody like that. They're just so stinking selfish and they're sinful and we got this whole list of bad things we can say about them. We just made up our mind we could never love anyone like that. 
You know, listen, that's not an indictment against that person. They might be everything you say they are, but if you can't love them, that's an indictment against you. That says something about your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when everything is right between us and God, we'll be able to love others in spite of their faults and their failures. By the way, that's exactly how He loved us, is it not? He loved us in that while we were yet sinners. It didn't say that He loved us after we got better. Didn't say that he started loving us when we became sincere. He loved us when we were sinful and insincere and stubborn and rebellious, and God just made the decision, I'm going to love them anyway. That's the way he loved us. That's the way we're to love each other. So that's the example as Christ also hath loved us. Now, notice the evidence. And hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for the sweet-smelling savor. Where there is love, there will always be evidence of it. And if we had to sum it up in one word, I don't know what word you might use, but I would use the word giving. Love always gives. God so loved the world that He, what? He gave. Many years ago, F.B. Meyer, a famous preacher, wrote these words. He said, Wherever there is true love, there must be giving and giving to the point of sacrifice. Love is not satisfied with giving trinkets. It must give at the cost of sacrifice. It must give blood, life, all. And it was so with God. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Christ also loved and gave Himself up an offering and a sacrifice to God. Listen, that's hitting the nail on the head. That's exactly the way it was. You know, God didn't just love us enough that He's willing to to tolerate us. God didn't just love us enough to give us a few of the trinkets of material possessions. God loved us so much that He gave the very best that heaven had to offer. He gave His own dear Son. Notice each phrase in this evidence. He says, notice, that He hath given Himself. Well, who in the world could deny that? I mean, the evidence is there for all of us to see. He didn't just give Notice, He gave Himself. He didn't just give some, He gave all. He gave His life a ransom for our sins. In John chapter number 10, it says, Jesus speaking, He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. I lay down My life. No man taketh it from Me. I lay it down of Myself. Do you remember the scene there in the garden? They'd crossed over the brook Ketron. They'd gone into the garden there to pray. And suddenly there's a mob of men who come to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, whom seek ye? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember his response was, I am. And when he spoke, they fell backward to the ground and they found themselves at his mercy. Listen, he could have killed every one of them just like that. No problem whatsoever. He could have delivered himself 
from those men, regardless of how well trained or how intent they were on arresting him, they did not stand a chance, but he willingly submitted himself to them. That's why he said, no man takes my life. He says, I lay it down. Had Jesus not surrendered himself to them, there was no chance of them ever taking him. I mean, can you imagine them arresting the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Can you imagine them overcoming the one who created it all? The one who flung the worlds out there in space like they were just tiny little balls of cotton. The one who hung the sun and the moon and the stars. The one who keeps all of the universe operating with clock-like precision. Even better than that. Can you imagine them overcoming Him? No, Jesus voluntarily yielded Himself up to them. Notice, even to the death of the cross. The beating, the bruises, the blood, all of those things were of His own choosing. He gave His life. Now, notice what happens next. For us, it says. Those words are personal and they're precious. Jesus did not just die, He died willingly. He did not just die willingly, He died for us. You see how personal this is? He didn't just die for the world, He died for you. He wants you to take that personal, you see. Regardless of who you are or what you've done, Jesus died for you. He paid your sin debt. But notice this last phrase, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This is so rich, and we could just spend 30 minutes here easy. Here's what I want you to notice. Jesus is both the sacrifice and the priest. Now, that's not ordinary, right? You think about the, the priests back in the Old Testament, and the priest would bring the sacrifice. But what did Jesus bring? Himself. It says He offered, notice, He offered Himself as an offering. He presented Himself. He is the presenter. That is, He's the one that is the priest. But He's also the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. And He presents Himself as a sacrifice to the Father. And notice how this is described as a sweet-smelling Savior to God. And that simply means that it was something that was pleasing and acceptable to God. In my mind, the most beautiful account of, of this to be found anywhere in the Bible is Isaiah chapter 53. I want to turn there and read just certain portions of this. But I hope when you get home, if you've never studied Isaiah 53, that you'll get home, get in a quiet place and open your Bible and just inch your way through this amazing chapter. He begins by saying, Who hath believed our report? Well, not very many. Verse 3, And he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteemed 
Him not. Verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, verse 7. Verse 8, taken from prison. Verse 8, cut off out of the land of the living. Verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. Verse 10, now notice carefully, remember, he presented himself. He's the priest, he's the offering, and he presents himself to the Father as a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Notice what it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who's responsible for Calvary? The Roman soldiers? Were they the ones responsible for that? Uh, was it the Jews? I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those that call for his crucifixion? Are they the ones? What about us? Are we not just as guilty? Certainly we are. But the bottom line, beyond all of that, is the fact that this was God's doing. He was orchestrating the whole thing. And notice, it pleased the Lord. We think of the suffering on the cross and how horrible and terrible, how awful it was. And it's beyond anything that we can imagine. And to read these words is just shocking. And that pleased God. God was pleased with that. That's what it says. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he hath put him to grief. Notice, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now, verse 12, he hath poured out his soul unto death. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Listen, that's what pleased God. It was not just the fact that Jesus suffered. It was the reason for which he suffered. Because God the Father knew that the only way that his creatures could be redeemed from the fall was for God Himself to present Himself as an offering. And that's exactly what Jesus did as God in the flesh took our place. Now, when we think about these glorious truths, it enlightens our mind, it'll break your heart, it'll thrill your soul, it'll awaken your senses, it will fill you with hope. But listen to me, this is what it ought to do. Living in the light of, of these truths ought to motivate each and every one of us to love others, to walk in love. Why should we walk in love? Why should God love you? God loved you. God loved me. And because God loves us, we ought to love others. Who are we to deny love to somebody that God loves? We don't have that right. Whoever they are, what they've done, if you refuse to love them, you're worse than they are. Because you claim to be a child of God. You claim to have accepted the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for you, and then you turn around and refuse to love others unconditionally. 
walk in love. Wouldn't it be amazing if the difference it would make in our homes, the difference it would make in the church and everywhere, if we'd all walk in love. That's the command. And He's given us the example of Jesus Christ. And then He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do exactly what He commands. You know, whenever God tells us to do something, He always provides the means whereby we can do it. So it's a cop-out. It's never, listen, it's never an acceptable excuse to say, wow, that's just too hard. That's too difficult. I just can't do that. No, you can't. You can't, listen, you can't love your enemies. You can't forgive your enemies. None of us can live victoriously. None of us can walk in love unless, unless we have learned to appreciate the grace of God in our life, because going back to what I said this morning, the manner in which we live, our attitude and our actions are always going to be in direct proportion to how much we appreciate the grace of God. When we really do appreciate the fact that God loves us, that Jesus died for us, it'll become a whole lot easier for us to love other people even when they're unlovely, because that's the way He loved us, and we're willing to love them. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, how we thank You for loving us and for making it clear, making it evident that You really do love us. We don't have to sit around and wonder about it. God forbid that we ever would doubt Your love. Help us to keep our eyes focused on Calvary, to be always aware of Your great love for us. And remind us of our responsibility to walk in love toward others. Lord, may we be willing to love those that hate us, willing to love those that would use us, willing to love those that mistreat us, because after all, our sins were responsible for your crucifixion, and yet you love us. And so help us to walk in love that others might see Jesus living in and through us, and that they'll have a desire to know him as their own dear Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. While we stand together, those awaiting baptism, if you would go, please, directly on to the dressing room and be making preparation. I'll meet you there in a moment. But if you're here, God's speaking to your heart about your need of walking in love. Maybe tonight you're here and your heart is full of bitterness and anger toward other people. And maybe you just need to come and deal with that. Get on your knees before God and pray, Lord, forgive me for being so unloving toward others. Help me to love them like you love me while we sing. Come on. I have decided to follow Jesus. I
seated and Tim's going to continue to lead you in the song and we'll be ready for the baptismal service in just a few minutes. 